Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn from Focus Compounding, on air live with Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? It's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great with everybody else as well. If this is the first time you are tuning in with us, thank you so much for joining us. Be sure to check out all of our content that we push out uh, into the investing universe. The best place or best way to do that is to follow me on Twitter at at Focused Compound. Uh, if this is the first time you are tuning in, hit that subscribe button wherever you're listening or watching us. And of course, if you're interested in learning about our money management services, you can reach out to me at Andrew at FocusCompound.com or click the Invest With Us tab on our website uh, at FocusCompounding.com. All of the information is down below in the description. So in today's podcast, we are going to be talking about a topic that you had highlighted and wrote about for our Focus Compounding Friday edition. So by the time that everybody is listening to this podcast, this would have already had been pushed out um, through our email list and on our website and through Twitter. Uh, so to read the blog post entirely or the Friday edition entirely, uh, you could go to focuscompound.com and you will see a Friday edition uh, link, which is where we are going to build a backlog of all of uh, the posts that we are going to push out every single Friday um, uh, through Focus Compounding, Twitter, and our email list. There will also be a spot there uh, to join the email list so you can have this in your mailbox every single week. Uh, what we're basically going to do with it is people send in topics to Jeff all the time. He's going to write about it. And then I'm also going to have like a Andrew's Corner aspect of it as well and really just talk about interesting uh, you know, tweets, interesting blog posts, interesting ideas, stuff with special situations that I'm currently seeing um, and, and keep almost like a monitor of it. Uh, so the price of this is the best price there is, which is free. Um, all you gotta do is go to focuscompound.com and uh, you could view it there and uh, put in your email to have it in your email box every single week on Friday. Um, and of course, there will be a section, as you can see right here, where you could click the email link and it will email to Jeff. So don't mm -hmm. be shy, send him questions uh, very much like this, and perhaps it will be featured on the podcast. So somebody had uh, emailed into you, and I don't want to spend the entire podcast going word for word on this because everyone has to read the actual blog post themselves if they want. Uh, but it's titled, The Many Different Ways to Guess a Business's Future Revenue. And the question that was sent into you, Jeff, was clearly forecasting revenue is very important if we want to forecast earnings slash free cash flow at some point in the future. My question is, how do you think about forecasting revenue for a company? Question mark. In other words, what do you look at and which are your preferred methods to do it? So this is a very common question we get. And we've spoken about it on the podcast before. It always kind of is a variation of what's growth, right? What what mm -hmm. is um, you know like when you talk about oh this company growing, I think this company can grow five percent over the next five years or ten years or whatever those numbers are. People are like, are you talking about revenue? Are you talking about earnings per share? Are you talking about free cash flow? And how do you almost quantify that? How do you put those numbers on paper and get comfortable 
with um uh, you know what you think growth can be and you had said one of my favorite investing quotes uh in this article which is true you said in investing all you know is the past and all that matters is the future if you can know not quite for sure but you can make a good enough guess what the future will be just a few more years or so, you can actually figure out a more accurate guess of what you are really buying when you buy a stock. What you're buying is the company's future earning power. You're not buying its current earning power. So basically accounting is all about the past and finance is all about the future. And that is entirely what we are trying to do as investors. So maybe take us through how you think about this, Jeff. Uh, I could hit on a few different highlights, um, uh, but how do you go about and how do you typically think about uh, forecasting a business's future revenue? So there are, uh, the in the article, what I talk about is the standard sort of um, benchmarks that you might use, right? So you might think that it's going to grow as fast as inflation. You might think as fast as inflation plus population growth. You might think as fast as nominal GDP. Um, which is basically inflation plus um, population growth plus productivity um, per person, you know. Uh, so the you can have other ideas about a company, which people often, often what people will use is the past growth rate, right? So if it grew th this fast in the last three years, five years, 10 years, they'll use that, right? But there are all sorts of reasons why that's kind of difficult. Um and this gives you more of an idea of, I guess people would say the terminal rate, right? Um, what's actually going to matter, which I talk a little bit about in the article, is a really good guess about the next few years. If you have a really good guess about the next few years, which could be very different from these numbers, like I think they're going to gain market share, I think they're going to sign this new contract, I think whatever, cyclically it's going to improve. But knowing what revenue and earnings and everything might be three years out or something is very important because that could mean that you are actually getting at a kind of a low PE versus near-term earnings. Um, but then the other issue, which is really big, is the more terminal rate. Um, so knowing the difference between something which will grow at basically zero and something that will grow at 6% um, for a very, very long time is really important. And so you might want to think about those things. Uh, will it really keep its market share? Will this industry really be as big in the future or bigger uh, relative to GDP than it is now, things like that. Um, so I talk about like, you know, say supermarkets or something, if they're selling groceries are going to decline um, relative to GDP. They're not going to decline relative to population. People aren't actually going to consume less groceries over time, but it's not going to keep pace um, because they're going to spend more on, uh, as they get more disposable income, they're not going to spend that as much as a percentage on basic necessities. Instead, it's going to go to entertainment and financial services and information services and all these things that we can think about, tech things and stuff. Those get the marginal dollar as opposed to um, things that you'll spend very basically, right? And so that's not going to grow as fast unless it takes market share, which then would be building out a number of stores and stuff. A very common one that people do for retail or restaurants is unit growth and same-store sales growth which is another way to estimate it. So what do they do? They think about what the total addressable market could be yeah. for the unit, derive a revenue number off of there, probably use some sort of margin on what they think the economics could be of 
that business and then work their way backwards uh, to like future revenue and what the return could be on that, like a range of outcomes. Exactly. So you might think, okay, I think there can be 500 cheesecake factories in a country, or I think there can be a thousand uh, Howden joinery depots or whatever. And you just estimate what is the sales level that they have now? What would it be in the future? How many new stores are they going to open up each year? And I um, talk a little bit about that because um, what tends to happen, not always, but what tends to happen is that your growth rate in that is going to be higher at the front part of it and then slower at the end because there are some constraints in just number of stores that you're opening. If you get twice as big, usually you don't open twice as many stores, so the percentage growth doesn't stay the same because there needs to be some corporate stuff going on to understand what you're doing, picking sites and everything. And so it's easier if you only have 10 locations now to open three more next year than it will be if you have a thousand to open 300 more. It's not always true. I mean, there's, you know, there's uh, cable cowboy or whatever. They were just closing acquisitions every few days. Blockbuster was opening new stores every, you know, few days or whatever. Um, but there are some that just go at an incredible pace, just repeating the same exact thing. But for most, they have to. Um, it's easier to grow when your units are fewer in the beginning, and then it, it tails down. And so you could think of it in terms of limits. Maybe it's 20% growth up front, but then it's going to come down to being only 10% growth or something 10 years out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you kind of hit on that here. The easiest growth industries to analyze would be those that are not fully rolled out on the supply slash distribution size rather than those where we expect the share of wallet of each customer to go up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, today that might be um, electric vehicles, possibly. Um, it might be AI that's in short supply, you know, some of the things in that industry in terms of like chips and things. Um you know, there, there could be a wind and solar, you know, the belief that there's more demand for them, but it takes time to, to do that. Um, and in the past, things like cable, railroads, you know, um, you knew in 1830 that other places would want as many railroads as exist in the East Coast or something. But it would take decades before the capital could be raised and those things actually built out. So you wouldn't see it for 30 years or something. And, and same sort of thing with cable. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting, too, you had spoken about, like, thinking about what the economics can be, right, as well, like, basically, when the industry is mature, and, you know, because that's all that really matters to you as an investor, the cash that that company or whatever you're looking at is going to generate. So to your point about railroads, for example, railroads were a horrible industry for investors mm -hmm. over time, right? And now things have changed. And I think a lot of that is to deal with, uh, because of the different point in its own life cycle where it's at right it's much more mature there's been con consolidation less competition and they've been able to really focus on uh like operations as well as opposed to just like a complete land grab you know yeah so relative to gdp or something it's not that radically different than it was 100 years ago but relative to um uh, the number of uh, amount of labor for instance having to be used is way down um, capital and things might be down too, but labor's way down. It used to be a huge employment industry. It doesn't employ a lot of people now. So it becomes a lot more efficient. You know, that was always the Tom Murphy quote that, it, you know, and he used it literally referring to a train in how he talked about it. But the idea is not to have the longest train, but to, you know, be the most efficient, you know, um, to move the most with the least. And uh, that's what actually drives returns on capital and stuff. So it's it's not, that is the bigger part of it. And when we talk about growth, 
for an investor, what we really need is growth and intrinsic value, right? So if the business actually deteriorates as it grows, which many industries did have happen, um, then it's not so good. So radio, TV, you know, the actual manufacturer of radio sets, TV sets, things like that. Most consumer electronics, it hasn't happened for iPhone, but it's happened for most other consumer electronics, have higher gross margins up front, make a lot of money. As the penetration gets higher for the um, overall uh, number of people in the country that are buying these things, the profit pool doesn't keep getting bigger. It actually gets, you know, a lot worse. And so you have some, you know, the intrinsic value doesn't grow at the rate that the um, revenue grows. So that is a huge issue for investors to think about. Um, Revenue growth is, you know, it's not the most important thing. Revenue is the easiest thing to show good numbers in if you don't care about the other things that are happening. So if you can have a balance sheet of unlimited size, you can have a lot more revenue. But obviously then your returns on capital would be bad and everything. And people will recognize that in the mature stages, but they may not recognize that the difference between a great business and a not so great business when they're both losing some money in the very early stages. They both just look like they're losing money, but they have a good future ahead of them. But um, it may be that the economics of one is a lot better than the other. Um, And so that's what really matters when we're talking about the stock. But this was a question about revenue, which, you know, um, I talk a little bit at the very beginning of like, look, if they tell you how many people they're going to have employed, if they tell you the square footage they're going to have, how much capital is going to be in the business, that actually is what's going to determine for the most part what revenue will be, right? So if U.S. Steel wants to have more revenue, well, just double the amount of capital that you're using, and they will have more revenue. They'll take share from somebody. Um, it doesn't mean it'll make it worth any more to you, but that is the honest answer. Um, you can keep having revenue by retaining all your earnings, by borrowing more, whatever, but it doesn't create value for shareholders. So what we're worried about more is the revenue growth at companies that are generating some economic value um, or promise to, right? That's a more complicated one, is that at some sort of scale, they will create economic value at the scale that they're at now, they won't. Do you think a good example of that is Carvana? Uh, Carvana is a complicated because company. Because the revenue has gone berserk, but net income has also just been in the red. Um, and, and I mean, that's been, a, I mean, completely in the red and also they've diluted to hell. Uh, so it's a good example yeah. of, okay, well, yeah, they did 13.6 billion in revenue in 2022, but as an investor, I mean, it hasn't really meant much, right? Yeah, so Carvana's complicated because in the very early stages, um, there's questions about whether the model could ever be profitable, right? But they're imp- they did improve on like a unit type basis in terms of gross profitability to a point that was reasonable, not incredible, but like if they got to a huge scale that they could make money. The problem is more the balance sheet stuff, the capital. So we've talked about this with venture capital type things and stuff. If they had access to cheap capital or if their stock was incredibly overpriced or something and they could issue shares, then it might be possible um, to create value. You know, sort of um, Jacob McDonough has been doing on the 10K podcast, the Teledyne um, story, you know, and they did that where they issued shares at one point in their history. They bought back stock at another, that kind of thing. The the balance sheet is pretty big for companies car dealers um and it's big for carvana compared to what people are used to for tech companies they might think of this as like a same sort of fast growing startup whatever but it has really fast growth in like assets and things like that and so um if it gets into a position 
where it's hard for them to access capital, then you could have problems. And it did become hard for them to access capital compared to what it used to be. Um, what do they have there for net current uh, for current assets in the most recent quarter? Let's go to sure. So we could go to quarter on Quick FS, uh, June two thousand twenty three. Total current assets three point nine billion. Right, and then PP and E is big too, right? Yeah, three point six. And what do they have in total um, current liabilities? Total current liabilities two point one billion. Okay. So one of the issues is that obviously they don't have much of networking capital surplus generally. So they're, um, when you take into account the long-term debt, if long-term debt moves into short-term stuff, then they've got lots of problems. So it's financially tougher for them, obviously, um, which is typical of other car dealers. So it's not unusual that way. The difference is that they're trying to grow much faster than they're actually earning money to retain um, earnings, right? Because they haven't really earned a lot of money. I mean, there may be quarters where they generated cash flow and stuff. Um, I think there were briefly, but um, they're, they're not really self-funding to the level of the growth that they want to have. But it is legitimate to think that that growth would help them. I mean, scale is helpful in um, car dealer stuff and, and knowing the, um, the having the company's name out there and everything is helpful too. Um, but it's taxing on the balance sheet. Mm -hmm. very taxing on the balance sheet so i thought this section was great from your article because it sort of brings back uh the way that buffett thinks about these things right like when he talks about technology and how he doesn't understand it what he's really talking about he's he doesn't understand the customer decision making aspect of it right um and you had said churn and attrition are major factors to consider as well revenue will be easiest to predict where items are subscribed to or purchased extremely frequently at very low cost per transaction, et cetera, versus situations where purchases are infrequent, high ticket price, et cetera. Habitual use is easier to predict than non-habitual. It's much easier to predict revenues related to fans watching something, people betting on something, people drinking, people smoking, people watching, and so on, than it is to predict revenues tied to people going to a gym, dieting, et cetera. Very few people stay loyally hooked on any diet, exercise, etc. A lot of people stay hooked to what they watch, drink, eat, play, and do in many other ways. So I thought that was interesting. I'm just like understanding the um, end user, right, that you're deriving that revenue from. Because if you're forecasting in the future, it's easier to stick to something or feel more confident about those forecasts if uh, you know the end user doesn't change much. Yeah, so I mean the the buzzwords now are all about um, the recurring revenue, right? But Buffett invested in companies, whether it was Gillette or Coke or, or whatever, that technically might not be recurring revenue, but it's actually more stable um, that people are locked into it in terms of their habits than a lot of businesses that are based on recurring revenue. So either one works. Um, you know, the reason why Microsoft got to be such a big growth stock why cable was such a big growth industry is in large part that once people started using windows they didn't stop once people signed up for cable they didn't cancel um it, it's very important for the net um growth rate which is heavily dependent on the amount of attrition that you have um so churn and stuff is a very big problem um and it's much harder to predict things in which people will have to make a decision infrequently um one that's subscription-based so that they're making it all the time or they're not really making it at all. Um, and ones that are very frequently purchased at low cost are much, much easier to predict. And so they could even be easier at a very early stage 
we don't know. I mean, like, you know, Celsius or something could be faddish early on, but it's still better to pick a consumer product thing like that than it would be, say, to pick Peloton or something. Now, that's other things equal. It doesn't mean that Peloton doesn't develop other things and become better or have a stronger position or whatever. But if you had two strong, equally strong positions in those kinds of industries, you would lean towards the one that people are buying all the time rather than the infrequent high ticket price kind of purchase. Um, you know, so a lot of it is repeat purchasing of some things and, and that's more the one you want to focus on. doesn't mean that it, nothing can ever change what we talked about with Bud Light or something, but in general, you know, you want ones where the churn is low. That's really important for predicting future revenue. If churn is high, it's going to be very hard to predict future revenue. Mm -hmm. So you had talked about thinking about what a company could be worth, uh, you know, three to five years in the future. I think that's probably a great uh, way to look at it because, you know, one to two years, that's what all of these like multi, um, what do they call them? Like uh, multi-manager hedge funds or pod shops or whatever. They're all focused on next quarter or next two quarters or even next year, right? Um, it's interesting if you learn about their business model and how they manage risk. I mean, the incentives that are um, at those funds uh, basically make it so you can't have these huge moves or on the downside or or um, be involved in like the volatility that can come from thinking three to four to five years in the future. Um, so less competitive on the three to five year mark um, from a lot of capital in the market. And then maybe three to five years, your confidence level can be much higher than it would be over 10 years, um, because 10 mm -hmm. years is a long period of time. I mean, do you think that's why thinking about it on like a three to five year basis is a good way to uh, think about it? Yeah, I think for a few reasons. One, with discount rates and stuff, it's just it may not be worth your time to think too much about things that are much further out. It depends on what the discount rates are and everything. But if you have other things you think you can make 10, 15% and then worrying too much about something that you don't think will kick in at all till year six is is probably not worth a lot of your time. Um, the other thing is you could see more of the continuation of current trends right now. Um, you know, I mean, you could have owned NVIDIA 10 years ago and held it and held it and held it. And then eventually their investments and things pay off when that becomes a more popular area. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. Maybe Phil Fisher would do that, but it's going to be hard for a lot of people. Um, so I think not anchoring too much on this year's earnings, but thinking what will it earn a few years from now is a good idea. And it is we don't know like if that how legitimate that is but where we talked about the um buffett talked about the growth a few years out and uh pe and all of those kinds of things about the confidence levels that is looking out only about 5 years or something so i don't think that he necessarily looks and says um what is apple's growth rate going to be for many many years if you know that it's going to grow nicely for the next 5 years or something three to five years, and you also know that's really durable, which is more the question for the really long-term thing. Um, that's important. For the DCFs, you know, I've seen things where people use terminal rates that um, people tend to use pretty common terminal rates. So that is considering the end um, growth rate is important. Uh, it's why you would think that... Um, you would have a different terminal rate on like OTC markets or something than you would on a supermarket. And you could approximate that by just using different EBITDA things and knowing what things go for in an industry, I guess. But you don't want to use a low terminal rate for a business that you think will maintain uh, the same sort of 
um, growth versus you know GDP and stuff. Something that will be as relevant in the economy versus something that you think will decline over time or um, doesn't have much growth without putting in more capital. So it's very important that the really good businesses, generally for the long term, uh, it really would be doing the terminal rate that you would appreciate that. But like I said, you could just do that by saying, I'm going to give it a high multiple. I'm just going to say that things in this industry deserve 15 times EBITDA instead of 8 times EBITDA or something. And obviously that is just a way of doing the exact same thing. And when you say, and what the revenue will look like once the company is done growing, so like in that year yeah. 5 or year 10 or whatever, I mean, are you thinking about what's the cash flow that will come off of that or is it purely like a terminal value thing? No, it's, it's a terminal growth rate. I mean... The this is underappreciated, but a lot of very fast growing things will reach their um, limits of their growth faster than will say some small financial services thing. So you could have an insurance company that's a growth stock, very low growth, but a ten percent grower or something, for eighty years, but you won't have something that is going to dominate its total addressable market. Um, continue to grow all that much, uh, you know, once it gets to those levels and stuff. Um, so, you know, going back to the nineties or whatever, Cisco was a phenomenal grower up to a certain point. Once it reached that point, it, you know, it has not been growing all that impressively versus the, um, other kinds of stocks, the economy, whatever, for 20 years or something. So it, you know, um, it would be dangerous to confuse the growth up to the point of saturation that you think it's going to achieve with a growth at the end of it, the terminal growth. You know, the thing I don't like about the terminal growth stuff is that I think a lot of people just use it for what they have to use it for, which is a, a mathematical cheat, which is that you need to make sure that your discount rate is um, higher than your terminal growth rate to be able to make it work. Um, otherwise you can't make a calculation basically. So you have to bring it down below that. So how, what you choose for discount rates and what you choose for terminal growth rates is mostly just to give you a sum, but that's for growth things. That's going to be a big factor, uh, in your, um, total calculation, right? And so actually the things would be assumed to have pretty different growth rates. Um, you know, I don't know what you know, Walmart has grown in the last 10 years or something, but it's not a very high number. And um, certain other kinds of companies have had a higher number there for growing because they haven't declined in terms of importance in the economy or something. And so that is very important to keep in mind. Um, you know, and, and the way to do that maybe is just to watch it all the time and then to be like Peter Lynch and sell it when it exits its growth phase. Maybe you want to put in categories and say it was a fast grower and now it's not. It's, you know, it's fine to own Cisco or Dell or whatever up to a point and then you get out of them when that's no longer a really fast part of the growth in that, um, in that industry, right? That, I mean, that industry, I should say, what they're doing isn't growing that fast, um, you know, but if, if you look at predictions for electric cars or something, right? So a lot of it will happen in the next 10 years if those predictions are right in terms of new car sales. Um, it can't grow that much after that because if people think half of all cars sold are going to be electric, well, then you can only take the other half. There, people aren't going to be buying cars much faster, so the growth drops off dramatically after 10 years. 
Um, so you don't want to confuse what do I think the next 10-year growth rate is with what do I think the next 30-year growth rate is because it goes from being a fast grower for 10 years to actually not growing faster than other things at all. And it has to do that because it can't keep growing relative to the economy once you get to that point, right? It's just not possible. Cool. Well, be on the lookout for this. By the time everybody is listening to this podcast, uh, we would have sent this out already to our email list uh, through my Twitter at, at Focus Compound and of course at focuscompound.com. So I recommend to everybody uh, to go and read it. Jeff goes uh, pretty in depth on it. It's 11 pages long, I think 3,000 words. Um, so you should definitely go and check it out at focuscompounding.com. Uh, and of course, you will see the email link uh, where you could send uh, future questions to Jeff that helps sort of keep everything here fresh and new and uh, helps us come up with new content to bring to the listeners and readers. Uh, if this is the first time you're tuning in with us, be sure to hit that subscribe button wherever you are listening or watching. And of course, if you're interested in learning about our money management services, you can reach out to me at andrew at focusedcompounding.com. I want to thank everybody so much for all the support. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for reading. And we will see you in the next podcast. Take care.